All right, so one of the reasons why I love Fifth Sundays is kids are in here. And I know kids, sometimes you get bored with me. Uh, but I still love having you in here anyways, which is one of the reasons why I pass out Play-Doh. If I didn't like you in here, I wouldn't pass out Play-Doh. So I pass out Play-Doh because I love having you in here. And, and uh, some of you have been wondering about the sledgehammer and the cinder block. So kids, just, just keep watching. Uh, maybe that will come into play. I don't know. We'll see what happens with the sledgehammer and cinder block later on. So I, I love having kids in here. I love potlucks afterwards. I'm a huge fan of the potluck. Uh, so uh, there are several people that make fantastic food in here, and uh, I love to enjoy that. So I love that fifth Sunday for that reason. This fifth Sunday, we don't always have baptisms, but this one was really special because of that. So I, I really enjoy that. Another thing that I enjoy on fifth Sundays is if you look at your bulletin, you can see there's on the inside, there's two sides. There's a place for notes on both sides. One side is an uh, information card that you can fill out, turn it into the offering box, and we can add your email to our database, and that gets you announcements and things like uh, midweek devotionals, which I'm really sorry I didn't send that out till Saturday. I thought I sent it out on Wednesday, and then I opened my computer on Saturday, and there it was, and I was like, oh man, i got to hurry up and send that out. So, but usually it's on Wednesday, so usually you get a, win, a midweek devotional, which is like follow-up on the sermon and some life application. But if you turn it to the other side, you'll see kind of a paragraph here, but really all this is asking you to do is turn in questions. So sometimes when there's a sermon, it will spark questions like, hey, what on earth does this mean? Uh, all kinds of different questions come in, and I reserve fifth Sundays to answer those questions. So sometimes it takes me a while to answer your question. The next fifth Sunday is until January, so I just got a, a question last week. If I get more questions, I can take some time out and answer them more often, but I usually reserve them for fifth Sunday, and I love answering these questions. So that's another thing I love about fifth Sunday, is we take time out to answer questions. So the question at hand, the question that is asked today. Well, before we get to it, let's pray. Dear Lord, we thank you so much for your word, that in the midst of big questions, we can turn towards your word and we can be sure of your word. Even sometimes we don't understand, but we know that your, true, your word is true, your word is right, and we can turn towards it for answers. In your name we pray, amen. So the question at hand is, before the coming of Christ, Gentiles went to hell when they died. Uh, and I think the person meant that more as a question than a statement. As, so we might throw in there, before the coming of Christ, did the Gentiles, did all Gentiles, go to hell when they died? And that's based off of Ephesians 2.12. So what was neat about this is as, I as we were walking through Ephesians 2, uh, we got to 2.12, which says, remember that you were at one time separated from Christ, alienated from the commonwealth of Israel, and strangers to the covenant of promise, having no hope and without God in the world. Now, this shows me that I didn't do a great job of explaining this verse, and I'm okay with saying that. There are times when we hit on some verses, and I just don't do a great job explaining it. So that left some questions, which is why we have the question side. So apparently I didn't do a great job of answering that, so let's dig a little bit deeper into this question of, does this mean, does verse 12 mean that all Gentiles just automatically went to hell? The short answer, I'll give you the quick short answer. 
The short answer is no, I don't think that's true. But now let me explain why. And in order to explain why, we've got to kind of dig through uh, Je or Ephesians 2.12, and then we'll kind of skip around a little bit. But Ephesians 2.12, we, we start off with, remember at that, that you were at that time separated from Christ. So what is this idea of separated from Christ? Well, Christ, before Christ, he wasn't really present in any clear way in biblical Israel. So Paul speaks here of the promise of the Messiah in Israel's scripture. So when he says, look back before Christ, you were separated from Christ, he doesn't necessarily mean that, that, that the Gentiles were separated out of Christ altogether, because Israel didn't even have a very clear picture of Christ. They knew of Christ, they knew there was this promised Messiah, but they hadn't put all the pieces together. So what he's saying here is that they were separated from the promise of the Messiah. Now what does that mean? That means that they were not the ones given the promise. So when we look back through the Old Testament we see that the promises were given, the promise of the Messiah, and it got clearer and clearer with every promise of who this Messiah would be, that was given to Israel. It was a nation specific, that God specifically designed to bring his message to the rest of the world. So that's what he means. So regardless of the precise allusion, his primary point is reasonably clear. Prior to the gospel, Gentiles were separated from the hope that Jews had in the coming of the Messiah. A hope that was eventually fulfilled in Jesus. That's the point, that they, that they weren't given that promised hope of the Messiah. So they were separated from Christ, but that wasn't it. Like This is, this is quite a few things that he's leveled against them. So not only were they separated from Christ, but they were alienated from the commonwealth of Israel. So prior to the intervention of the Gospels, Gentiles were separated or strangers to the commonwealth. Now there's a little bit of debate about what commonwealth means, but what I really think it means is that they were alienated from the special rights that belong to citizens of a country. So commonwealth here would be those special rights. As American citizens, as U.S. citizens, we have responsibilities. Here coming soon, we're going to have the responsibility to vote, right? That is a responsibility U.S. citizens get. It's not given to other people in other countries to vote in our elections. That's, that's something reserved for U.S. citizens. So that is a responsibility, but it's also a privilege to vote. Non-citizens don't get that privilege. But there are other privileges we experience as citizens, right? We get to plead the Fifth Amendment. We can say, I plead the fifth. We don't have to testify against our, ourselves. You know what? Citizens of other countries, they don't get that privilege as an American citizen. And there are other privileges that we get to experience. We can also think back to, uh, in particular, in Paul. Paul was a Roman citizen. So when he is arrested before the Sanhedrin, he presents his case, and he's got Roman governors presiding over him, and eventually the, you know, the Jews want to kill him, and what does he do? He appeals to Caesar. 
Not anyone in the Roman Empire could appeal to Caesar. There were a lot of people in the Roman Empire that were not citizens. They could not appeal to Caesar. In fact, most Jews were not citizens, and they could not appeal to Caesar. So what does Paul do? He practices the privilege of being a citizen, and he says, I appeal to Caesar, meaning that his case goes all the way to Caesar. And he can then present his case to Caesar on whether he is guilty of blasphemy. So that's what he's saying here, is that the, the Gentiles didn't get those special rights as citizens that the Israel, Israelites got. So because God had made a covenant with Israel, they had special rights. They had the temple and the Shekinah glory of God. And even more than that, they had God's special revelation. They had his word. And so they could always, when they had questions on life, when they had questions on morality, when they had questions on ethics, when they had questions on creation, they could always turn back to God's word, his special revelation, that, that he used Israel, that he created Israel and used Israel to bring about this special revelation. It didn't come to just any Gentile nation. And that's the point that he's getting at there. And then he goes on to say, strangers to the covenant of promise. So all of this special citizenship, you know, the commonwealth of Israel, that leads us to the covenants of promise. What he's further describing, what are some of the special things that they received as citizens of this nation Israel, this nation that God created to bless the nations, and those are the covenants of promise. This is what made Israel special, is that he made covenants with them. Now, there's several different covenants. We talk about this quite a bit, so we can go all the way back to the first covenant God makes with Israel, which is when he creates them as a nation. He, in Genesis 12, he takes Abraham aside, and he says, go from your land to a land that I will call you. He doesn't even tell him which land he's going to take him to. He just says, go, and eventually I'll show you this land. And I'm going to make you a nation. And through this nation, I will bless all other nations in the world. This is what we call a unilateral covenant. Meaning, God is going to make it happen. It doesn't matter what Abraham does. He can mess up. And you know what? We read, as we read through Abraham's story, he messes up repeatedly. He thinks God needs some help. He doesn't know that God can do it on his own. So he continually tries to help God, and when he tries to help God, he ends up messing it up quite a bit. We have a little helper in our house. She is three years old, and man, she wants to help. And it is really adorable, except she continually messes things up by her help. (laughs) She's spilling stuff all over, whole gallon of milk on the floor, because she's helping. I often picture, like, when we try to help out God, that oftentimes that's what it comes to, right? So that, that was Abraham's help. Like, God couldn't fulfill his promise. He, I need to help him, and so I'm going to go do all these other things. And God's like, Abraham, I got this. And then we see in Genesis 15, he re-ups this promise. And he specifically talks of the seed that he will create, that he will bring about through Abraham. And, and the, the text here specifically says 
and he believed in God, and it was counted to him as righteousness. Meaning, Abraham put his faith in God. He trusted what God said. And God counted, to that him, counted that to him as righteousness. So we see that, that Abraham was not saved through his works. He was not saved through, his, through any sacrificial system. It was simple faith that God counted to him as righteousness. But then we see the Mosaic Covenant as well. So in Israel, as God creates a nation out of them and they're getting ready to take over the Promised Land, he, he gives them what's called the Mosaic Covenant. And so he uses Moses as a character to bring this covenant to Israel, and it's what's called a bilateral covenant. And this covenant specifically says that if you remain faithful to me, I will bless you. And he goes through and he names all the blessings that they're going to get. But he also says, but if you turn from me and you worship other gods, I will raise up nations to discipline you. Now, sometimes we look at that and we want to apply that to our nation. But our nation is not a theocracy. Our nation actually hasn't made that covenant with God. So we don't get to experience those very specific blessings that God made with Israel. Conversely, we don't get to experience the discipline that God made with Israel. Now, I would like to point out that God, because he is the creator and he is created with moral principles and just principles for how life is governed, countries will be, will be more successful. Countries will thrive and countries will flourish when they follow the principles God has laid out. But that's just following the principles. That doesn't, that doesn't have to be part of the covenant. It's not God blessing us because we're following the covenant. It's us following his, his moral principles and benefiting from those moral principles. Conversely, if a nation turns from those basic principles that govern the world, that nation will not flourish. And that, once again, is not part of a covenant where God is like, okay, I'm going to discipline you now. It's simply feeling the effects of turning away from the moral principles God has created the world with. But that wasn't for Israel. Israel received blessings when they were faithful, and they received discipline when they turned from him. And then we've got the Davidic covenant, the, the final covenant that we'll talk about that they received, this covenant of promise. And that was that he, that God once again, this is a unilateral, meaning it's all dependent upon God, that he was going to take David's offspring, and through that offspring, he was going to provide the Messiah. So those are the covenants of promise. And notice that these all end up pointing towards Messiah. This is the point that Paul is getting at. That because the Gentiles were not the Jews, they weren't specifically given this revelation of Messiah. So they were strangers to the covenant of promise, and this separation from the promises of the Messiah and the alienation from the very word that promises the Messiah, this leads to no hope. Without a Redeemer, without a Messiah, there is no hope in this world. So, in turn, the Gentiles started to create their own little G-gods. 
hoping to somehow manipulate the universe into giving them what they want. And we see this still to this day. I hear people talk about manifesting things. You know, if I just think hard enough, and we read, there's books like The Secret that say that, if, that the universe will give you what you want if you can just manipulate the universe. And, and we see throughout everyone except for, uh, except for who, those who know the gospel, they believe that the universe can be manipulated to give you what you want. And so we try hard to like manipulate the universe with manifesting. If I just think hard enough about a million dollars, the universe will give me a million dollars. Or we start to believe in karma. You know, if, if I'm just a good person, then the universe owes me. And so I'm going to go do all this good stuff so that the universe will give me good stuff. And it's all about manipulating the universe, but it leaves you with no hope when tragedy strikes. Because no matter who you are and how good you've been, tragedy will strike. Death comes to us all. And it's not a matter of you manifested life or you manifested death. It's a matter of when Adam and Eve first sinned, they brought death and corruption into this world, and humanity has been struggling with death and corruption ever since. And so without the gospel, when we try to manipulate the universe and tragedy strikes, we are left hopeless. Because our way of manipulating the universe has failed. But the gospel tells us something greater, something more. That although there is death and corruption in this world, God has meaning and God has purpose and there is something more than just this life. That there is eternal life that we can live for. So even in the midst of death, even in the midst of tragedy, we can live for an eternal hope that we have in Christ. So they were strangers to the covenants and promise, having no hope and without God in this world because they were separated from God. So I could see why then we, would, we might make the assumption that all Gentiles went to hell. But what he's specifically talking about is the nation of Israel was given a special purpose by God, and the Gentiles didn't have that. But he's not talking about every individual. So the nations of the Gentiles did not have that. But we see throughout the Old Testament that there were plenty of Gentiles who did believe. There were plenty of Gentiles that put their faith in God and trusted God's word. And we'll see it, we'll turn to, to Hebrews 11 in a little bit, but we'll see everyone before Abraham was actually a Gentile, right? So God creates the Jewish nation with Abraham. So the nation actually starts with Abraham. So all of the Old Testament saints before Abraham, well, they were Gentiles. So you've got Noah, Seth, Abel, and even Abraham himself who believed in Christ, or who, sorry, who believed in God's word and it was counted to them as righteousness. But we can see this continuing through the history of Israel. So for example, Tamar was an Adulamite. Rahab was a Canaanite. 
Ruth was a Moabite. Three ladies who end up, their offspring end up producing Christ. And every single one of them are, are shown in Scripture to be heroes of the faith. How about Job? Melchizedek. He was around at the same time as Abraham and was called a priest of God. And the list goes on and on. So we can see a whole plethora of evidence that there were Gentiles, although separated from the covenants, they came to believe what God said. And they trusted God. And so even if they didn't convert, because of their belief, I believe they were counted as righteous. And then we get to the New Testament, and we see Gentile characters described as someone who fears God. So before the gospel comes to the Gentiles, Gentile characters were described as someone who fears God. And this means that they were Gentiles who loved God, submitted to Him, and never converted to Judaism. So they were still Gentiles in the flesh. They didn't go through that one very specific act that would convert them over to become Jews. And yet, they were God-fearers. People who believed in Yahweh, trusted in Yahweh, looked back throughout the Old Testament and, and put their faith in Yahweh. They trusted what Yahweh said. So Cornelius in Acts 10 is a great example. So we see that Gentiles, we see a plethora of evidence that Gentiles could in fact get saved. But that kind of leads us to another question. Before Jesus... How was someone saved? I mean, we can look back at Jesus and his work on the cross and we put our faith and trust in him to pay the price for our sins. And so what that does is we recognize that we're all a sinner. And what I mean by a sinner is that we've all rebelled against God. Every single one of us at some point in our life has shaken our fist at God and said, forget you, God, I want to do things my way. And sometimes that comes out in like really rebellious acts. For some people, it might look like murder. Would you say murder is a pretty rebellious act against God? It's taking someone else's life into your own hands, saying, God, I want to be God. But there are other moments in your life that are a little bit more subtle. How about when you know the right thing to do, but you don't do it? When you know God is calling you to do something, and you turn around and walk away. That's still an act of rebellion. That's still saying to God, God, you don't know what's best, I do. And so I'm going to usurp your power, and I'm going to do it. I'm going to do whatever I want. That's sin. That's rebellion against God. And the result is we have been separated from God, because he is a holy God, sin cannot be around him, and when we sin even in the most subtle ways that has separated us from God. And the result is eternal death, eternal separation. But God, being such a great God and loving and wanting His creation and desiring His creation to be redeemed, He had a plan. And that plan was that He would come and He would live a perfect life and he would pay the price for our rebellion. From the smallest acts of rebellion to the largest acts of rebellion, he was going to pay the price. 
And so he paid the price. And all it takes for that payment to be applied to you is to trust that he did it. To have faith that he did it. So that's what we get to look back and see. But how about before Jesus? Before Jesus, we go back to Genesis 15, and we clearly see that, it was, that Abraham believed, and it was counted as righteousness. So how were you saved before? Well, it was really simple. You believed, and you trusted in God's word. And specifically, that he was going to produce a Messiah. Now, that doesn't mean that you had to understand everything about the Messiah. You just simply had to trust in the Messiah. Hebrews 11 gives us a good outline. We're going to fly through this because I realize I'm going a little bit long. So, now faith is the assurance of things hoped for, the convictions of things not seen. So, faith means to have confidence. We, we totally uh, trash that word. So many times we say like, oh, I have faith in the Cardinals, that they're going to go to the Super Bowl this year. And really what we're saying is like, man, I really wish that they would do that, right? Boy, if I just cross my fingers and go through enough of uh, this mystical things, maybe they'll do it. But that's not having confidence. I don't have a whole lot of confidence that the Cardinals are going to make it to the Super Bowl. But faith is confidence. So we have confidence and it is the, re, the assurance. This word for assurance is actually, it, it, it started off as the word for a title or a deed. When Jen and I bought our car, we bought it used from this girl. She was an NAU student. And, uh, you know, we, we meet up in a parking lot and we test drive and we start talking through money. And she's like, great, we're settled on the price. Okay, so my title is actually back at my parents' house in Las Vegas. So you guys give me the money, you drive away with the car, and then I'll bring the deed next week. I'll bring the title next week. Yeah, no. <laughs> That's a good way for me to get arrested for Grand Theft Auto, right? Like, I'm going to drive away and you're going to call the cops and say, hey, these people just stole my car. Uh, no, without that title, it's not mine. And that's what he's getting at here. It's, it's this assurance, this thing that is a sure thing. Faith, when we have faith, we know it's a sure thing that God has given us the title. We have the deed of things hoped for, the things that we have expected. So when God gives us a promise of the Messiah, we are confident, we have the deed for that expectation of the Messiah. And we can look back and we can see that God has put down that down payment. He's given us the title that our sins are forgiven. And we can look towards the future knowing with confidence what will happen when we die. And he continues to describe it, the conviction of things not seen. For by it the people of old receive their commendation. So that word commendation means approval. It is by faith, trusting in God, saying that God's word is as good as me holding on to the deed, holding on to the title, that they were approved, that it was counted to them as righteousness. 
By faith we understand that the universe was created by the word of God, so that what is seen was not made out of things that are invisible. None of us were there at creation, right? That's, what he, that's the point he's getting at. None of us were there. We didn't get to see it happen. But by faith, we understand that God made it happen. And then he starts going through a list of characters. We're not going to go through it all, but I want to end up at 13. These all died in faith, not having received the things promised. So Abraham, Abel, Enoch, they were all given these promises. But they didn't get to see the promise come to fruition. But they still had faith. And having faith, having seen them and greeted them from afar, and that means that they had so much faith that they knew God was going to make it happen, and acknowledged that they were strangers and exiles on the earth. They knew that God had something so much more for them than this life. So that's what it all comes down to. Before Christ, it came down to faith. After Christ, it comes down to faith. What are you putting your faith in? So faith also isn't just simple knowledge. Sometimes we confuse knowledge with faith. And we think that if we just have the right knowledge, that is our faith. But you could have the knowledge of Christ. You could be a great Awana kid and have all of the verses memorized but not even understand them. And beyond not even understanding them, really trusting them, that they apply to your heart. But you could also, conversely, you might not know any of the Awana verses, but you know that Jesus died for your sins. And you might not even understand what that exactly means, but you trust God in it. And that's faith. So to give you an example, I've got here a sledgehammer. Jen, come on up. I've got a sledgehammer, and I've got... A cinder block. Now, I uh, used to work with a guy that was a physics teacher, and he worked for NASA, and so he showed me a lot of this stuff, and he explained all of the physics behind what's about to happen. But I don't need to know all of the physics for this to actually happen. I just need to trust Jen. So what I'm going to do is I'm going to lay down. This cinder block is going to go on my chest, and Jen's going to break it. And she's not going to break any of my ribs. Now, once again, I was going to do the, this with my son, but uh, it actually kind of wiggled too much. So uh, I'd, I'd use him as the example of, you know, in all honesty, he doesn't need to know the physics. In fact, my son doesn't know the physics. But he was going to trust me with it. And that's all he needed. So I'll go ahead and I will lay down. Kids, if you want to get a better view, you're more than welcome to come up. Sometimes pieces do fall off and hit you in the face, so I do wear a face mask. This is better than what I gave Clay a while back. All right, so what's going to happen is she's going to swing. She's going to hit the cinder block. The cinder block is going to absorb all of the energy, and in all honesty, I barely even feel it. You ready? You just have to make sure you hit the cinder block. <laughs> I'm ready. You ready? Well, I was really glad that I wore a helmet. 
<laughs> so there you go. I also trusted in the, in the face mask, right? <laughs> but that's what it is, right? I don't need to know all of the physics. I just need to trust that Jen knows what she's doing. And the same goes for our faith. Now, what's really cool about this is the more I study the physics behind it, the more I trust it. The more I know how this is working, the more I trust it. And the same goes for our faith. You don't need to know exactly how Jesus' death on the cross paid for your sins. You just need to trust it. And that's saving you. But man, when you start to examine God's character and when you start to examine God all the more and you start to really understand what he's done for you, it only increases your faith. It only helps you trust it all the more. Dear Lord, we thank you so much that you have given humanity an opportunity to be saved that you have given us a word that we can trust, that we can look back towards Jesus and we can trust his work on the cross so much so that we can look forward and be assured, be confident that we are holding the title to our eternal life with you. Even so much that the Gentiles and the Jews before Christ could look towards a Messiah, not quite understanding what you were going to do but able to trust that you had it under control. In your name we pray. Amen.